Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. Good morning to those of you in the overflow. James Weekly, Matt Powell, we love you guys. At the Franklin campus, Pastor Eric, you're my brother. God bless you. I love you all so much. Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Starting a brand new message series entitled Ecclesia. Go ahead, say the word. I know you want to. Say Ecclesia. It's a Greek word. It means church. It just means church. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church, and it literally means called out ones. So in the New Testament, when it talks of the church, uses the word church, it typically uses that word ecclesia, and it means the ones that are called out. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about for the next nine messages. And it's going to be really, really good stuff. A, a lot of you are church people. A lot of us have lived in the church, grown up in the church, been in church all of our lives. Others of us are brand new to the church, and we're still not exactly sure what all this church stuff is, is about. And honestly, from Sunday to Sunday, we're not always glad that we're a part of the church. Church life gets messy. Church life gets complicated. But church life is meant to be glorious. And that's what I want us to see from the book of Ephesians this morning. Chapter 1, starting with verse 1. This is a letter from Paul. Paul was a brilliant man and actually writes extremely wonderful letters. But Ephesians chapter 1, starting in about verse 3, it really gets amazing, absolutely amazing what Paul is saying. But I want you to look and sort of take notes that in verse 3 all the way to verse 14 and what we're about to read in Greek, which is the language that Paul wrote and read in the Greek, this is one sentence. Now, your English teacher would have flunked you for that, but Paul gets away with it because it's awesome. From Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to verse 14, it is one long, long, long sentence. And the English translations, like I'm reading the New Living Translation, it's going to break that up into different sentences and phrases. But understand, in Greek, Paul absolutely explodes with praise in this, in this sentence, and it's beautiful. Ephesians chapter 1, I want you to listen for what the church is what the church is from our perspective, but most importantly, what the church is from God's perspective, a God's eye view of the church, Ephesians chapter 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. And stop, that is just an introduction to a letter. When Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he was not self-consciously writing a book of the Bible. He was writing a letter to a church, a particular church, particular group of people in the town of Ephesus. And that's why we have that introduction. It's like saying, dear Ephesus, and, and, and then on from there. Verse 3, here's the big sentence. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I love that. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. 
God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan. Listen up. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ. A plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. Verse 10, you ready? This is the plan. At the right time, God will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance. Your translation may say predestined. He chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. Period. Isn't that awesome? Period. Verse 15. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your heart should be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. I love that verse. I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. What do you think of when you hear the word church? What comes to your mind when you think about church. In the 1980s, uh, there was a televangelist by the name of Jim Baker. Some of you will remember Jim Baker. Uh, Jim Baker did uh, quite a lot of damage, uh, in my opinion, to the cause of Christ and to the church. That's from my perspective. Jim Baker became very, very famous with his wife, Tammy Faye Baker. Uh, They uh, established the PTL club back in the late 70s, started playing all the way into the 80s, and they amassed quite a kingdom, if you remember, if you're old enough to remember, quite a kingdom of wealth and, and quite a ministry that reached, uh, I suppose, millions of people. Jim Baker, of course, was involved in a sexual scandal in the 80s, followed by a financial scandal, which, of course, resulted in his imprisonment, his divorce, and the total collapse of everything that he built. You might recall that after his kingdom collapsed, there was a big auction, a public auction where they auctioned off all of the stuff that Jim and Tammy Faye had accumulated through their their years of wealth and ministry. 
You may remember, I remember they auctioned off their doghouse. Do you remember their doghouse? It was huge. It was heated and air-conditioned and had gold fixtures. Gold fixtures. One of the items auctioned off in that auction that day was Jim Baker's desk, the, the, the desk from his office. And there was a man from Ontario, Canada, who flew all the way down uh, to where the auction was just to bid on that desk. And he bought that desk. He flew all the way from Canada down to bid and buy Jim Baker's desk. He was interviewed on TV shortly after that, and a reporter had asked him, why in the world would you fly so far and pay so much to have the desk of this man who is now in prison? Why would you fly and pay to have this desk? And the man said on national TV, he said, you just don't understand. You can't understand what that desk means to me. He said, five years ago, my life was a wreck, and, and my wife and I divorced. We had absolutely dissatisfied and disappointed each other, and our lives were shattered, and we divorced, and we went our separate ways. And I didn't hear from her, and I didn't see her for four years. But, but about a year ago, she called me. She called me saying that she had met a minister who had led her to Christ, and she was convinced that if I would come down and meet him and talk to her with him, that we might be able to get our lives back together. We might even get our marriage back together. He said, and so on a whim, I did that. I hadn't talked to that woman. I hadn't seen my ex-wife in four years. But I flew down on her request, and I sat down with her, and we sat down in the office of a minister named Jim Baker. I'd never heard of him at that time. He sat on one side of the desk and we sat on the other side of the desk. And he shared with me the message that he had shared with my wife the day before. He told me about Jesus. He told me about how Jesus died so that my sins could be forgiven and so that I could have a new start, a new life. And that day at this desk, I prayed and I asked Jesus to forgive my sins and give me a new life, a new start. I prayed, my wife had prayed the day before, same desk. From that day on, I had a new life. We did put our marriage back together. God has blessed us in amazing ways. So let me just say to you, and this is what he said to the reporter on television. He said, when you look at this piece of furniture, all you see is a desk. I see an altar. The altar where I got my life back. Interesting. Interesting how you can have just a different perspective and see things very, very differently. When people think about the church these days, they often think about people like Jim Baker. They think about preachers who are sexual uh, perverts and, and all kinds of fiends and thieves. And they think about church people who are hypocritical and church people who are in church are one person and outside the church another kind of person. As a church, in general, we have an all kinds of reputation. It really depends upon your perspective. But this morning, I want to ask you to adopt a a different perspective. We typically see the church from ground level, from pew level, if you will. That's how we think of it. Or maybe you think of the church as an outsider, one who's not in the church, one who's not altogether sure about what the church is or whether or not you should be enjoying this or not. I'm just asking you for a moment to come to Scripture with me and adopt God's perspective of what the church is. It's very, very different. And this is the true perspective. I know 
that you and I like to live down here on the ground and, and we think this is real and that this is real life, but you need to understand there are some things more real than you will ever imagine. And what God has planned for the church and what God sees when he looks at the church is very, very different from what you see. Very different. So let's start with a definition. Take out a pen, take out a piece of paper and write down some things with me. Definition of church. Let's get this much straight. Definition of the church. The church is, first, the people. Now you know this. Surely you know this. The church is people. It's people. The church is not a building. This building we call a church. Well, I'll see, there's my church as I drive past it on the road. We talk about the building as the church, but honestly, that's not the most correct way to, to refer to this building. Technically and biblically, the church is people. We are the church. So when we get in our cars and leave this morning, the church won't be at church. You understand? We are the church. The church is people. The church is not something to go to on Sunday morning or, or, or simply a place to occupy an hour on the weekend. You understand? The church is the people. The church is the people called by God. Understand that? Called by God. Not just any people, but the people called by God transformed through Christ, called by God, transformed, we could say saved, redeemed, we could use all of those good churchy words, the people called by God, transformed through Christ, possessed by the Holy Spirit, possessed by the Holy Spirit, to praise and glorify Him forever. The church is the people called out by God, transformed through Christ, possessed by the Holy Spirit, to praise and glorify him forever. That is the church. That's what the church is. I want to say three things. I'll start with P. This is a good preacher thing to do. Three things to start with P that have to do with the church. The church's plan, the church's power, and the church's purpose. You ready? I'll tell you that now so in a minute when I forget one, you can tell me back what I meant to say. Are you with me? The church's plan. First, the plan. Notice what the scripture says. And honestly, this is one of the places where church people these days are really starting to argue. It has to do with that word in some of our translations that, that says predestined. It's this whole idea of the fact that God has chosen the church, chosen us long before anything else. He destined us. Indeed, he predestined us to be in the church. Now, Paul uses that language here. But I want you to understand that when Paul uses that language, he is not stepping into the argument that lots of people want to have about the thing that's called predestination. Maybe you've never heard of that. And God bless you if you haven't. I wish I was you. I wish I was you. Because honestly, this is an argument that sort of comes around every 20, 25 years. And I'm coming now into the second time I've lived through it. And honestly, it's an argument, I'll just be real honest with you, that doesn't interest me much. I'm really not drawn into this. There are church people these days who would nearly bleed and die over these doctrines, but they are simply doctrines that we do not have to bleed and die for. I'm telling you, Paul was not a Calvinist. Paul did not know Calvin. Jesus didn't know Calvin for that matter. Do you understand? When Paul uses the word predestined, he's not using it as, as a Calvinist. He doesn't even know about that stuff yet. We're back to the Bible here. 
Now, the doctrines and the arguments that, that have come out of this, this idea, that this kind of language, that they have come much later. But you cannot, and I don't think you should, take the arguments of John Calvin and the arguments of the Reformed folks these days, and they are my brothers and I love them, but there's really no reason to take all of these things that people have argued about for years and read that back into Scripture. And there's certainly no reason to argue over it. I'm simply not drawn into this argument. And I wish that we could simply come back to a simple kind of reading the Bible where we don't always have to try to distinguish ourselves from other believers. It's certainly not what Christ intended. Bottom line is we can agree and we can disagree about these matters. They simply are not worth bleeding and dying for. Because when Paul uses that word predestined, and when Paul talks about our being chosen beforehand, I promise you, it means something so much more glorious than what we typically take it to mean. Now first, step back into the Bible. Step back into Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Remember, he's writing a letter to specific people And he's always practical. Paul is always practical. And he really wants to answer one of the big burning questions that had to do with the early church, the church in its earliest days. Now, Paul is saying that God, from the very beginning, before the foundations of the world, that God wanted to create for himself a people that would praise and glorify him forever. God wanted to create a people, and that's what he has done in the church. This is what Paul is trying to say. But the first objection to that in Paul's day is going to be, well, well, I thought God had a people. Didn't God have a people? And God's people were the Jews, See, that's the big question in Paul's day. What about the Jews? And honestly, you read the Old Testament, and and even though it is there, honestly, when God begins to create the church after Jesus was, was crucified and rose again and ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit came and the church was born, all of a sudden something amazing happened, something nobody saw coming, and that was that the whole world started coming to Jesus, not just Jews. But Gentiles, the whole world started coming to Jesus. And in the early church, that created something of a crisis. They didn't know what to do with the Gentiles. The Jews, the first Christians were Jews. They really didn't know what to do with Jews and Gentiles in the very same church. And they really had to rethink God's plan. Because in their mind, God's plan was always just about the Jews. They didn't understand where the Gentiles were coming from. So Paul is trying to explain that what God is doing through Christ in the church is something that he had planned all along. God had always planned to make his people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. You understand, when you talk about God's planning something in advance, you've got to, as I say, adopt a different kind of perspective. See, we see everything through our own eyes as human beings. And as human beings, we live inside of time. We have a beginning and we have an end to our lives. And even though we can read John 3, 16 and think about eternal life, honestly, we cannot fathom eternity. We can't fathom what it is to be God and to be outside of time. God is outside of time. So when we say God chose us from the very beginning for us, we think about God who chose us a long time ago because we can't stop thinking in terms of time. But understand, God is eternal. 
4th of July, 1976. I don't know how old some of you were. I was uh, in elementary school. My sister was probably middle school. And there was a bicentennial parade in Franklin, Kentucky. Franklin's always looking for an excuse to have a parade. 4th of July, bicentennial. Our nation was 200 years old. It was a glorious celebration. And the church I went to is Barb Baptist Church in Franklin. At Barb, we decided to make a float for the bicentennial parade in Franklin. And that's what we did. So this was our idea. We, we got a girl to be the Statue of Liberty. And it turned out that was my sister. We got my sister to be the Statue of Liberty and ride our float. Now, this is kind of a homemade redneck thing. But understand that we were proud of this. We took a hay wagon and we covered the whole top with aluminum foil. Did I mention it was July? We covered the top of a wagon with aluminum foil, and then we wrapped the outside with red, white, and blue paper. It was awesome, so awesome. And then we took my sister. You had to know my sister. We're talking the 70s. Y'all remember Charlie's Angels? My sister had that fair faucet hair, and it took her days to fix it, literally, literally days. And this particular day, she was going to be on parade in Franklin. So she spent a lot of time on her hair. She had it all feathered and shellacked with hairspray. She looked awesome. My sister, my sister was hot. And they put her on that wagon in a gold robe and a spiked crown like the Statue of Liberty. And we made her a torch. So my sister starts out on that wagon with that torch held high, that spiked crown, that fair faucet hair going back, and a gold robe. It was awesome. I mean, it brought, I was so proud of my sister. I had tears. Did I mention there was aluminum foil on the 4th of July? Y- y'all ever seen a ham bake in the oven? <laughs> my sister cooked. We cooked her that day, like in, like in a microwave from the inside out. We cooked her. It was hot. The sun was bouncing off that aluminum foil on the 4th of July on that Franklin parade. And I said my sister started out beautiful. She was like America's next top model, that hair feathered in the wind, that torch. <laughs> but then she rode that whole parade. And that is the world's longest, slowest parade. And did I mention this the 4th of July on aluminum foil? I'm telling you, by the time she got to the square, she had her torch like this because <laughs> she couldn't hold her arm up anymore. And her spiked crown was hanging and all of her hair was just limp and she was drenched with sweat. Because I'm telling you, it was the longest parade, longest parade in history. Now, now think about this because this is the way I want you to think about God's perspective versus our perspective. When you and I watch a parade, say the 4th of July parade in Franklin in 1976, when you watch that parade, your only option is to stand on the street and watch it all go by. It goes by one float at a time, and whoa, there goes my sister. She's really, really hot. And and on and on it goes. You just watch the parade go by. But understand, God's perspective is different. When God looks at our lives, when God looks at all of history, he sees the whole parade from above. Do you understand? He sees it all from above. So God is not watching everything go by one life at a time, one year, one decade, one millennium. God doesn't experience time like we experience time. He can see all of history. He can see it all from beginning to end because God is outside of it, outside of time. 
we're down on street level, pew level. We only experience our lives one day at a time. So for us, we can talk about something lasting a long time or knowing something for a long, long time. Or there are things that we don't know at all until they happen. But understand, God knows everything because he sees everything. So when you talk about whether God chooses us first or whether we choose God, don't you understand that doesn't even compute when you're talking about God and what God knows and when he knows it. God knows everything all the time. He's not learning things. He's not waiting to see what's going to turn out. God sees the whole world, all of human history. He sees it all from above, from outside. So this is where the doctrine of predestination for me kind of falls apart the way some people want to talk about it. Because the question is, does God choose me and then I don't have any choice? If God's chosen me, then what about the people who don't get saved and go to hell? Does that mean God chose them for hell? And some Christians say, yes, God chooses some people for heaven and God chooses some people for hell. Well, listen, that makes my head want to explode. I can't even fathom the God of Scripture, the God of Jesus, choosing some people for hell. I don't understand why anybody would choose to go that way. Because the Bible doesn't take us that way. The Scripture says that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. All means all. So it's not a matter of whether God chooses some and doesn't choose others. Don't you understand? God is above and God sees all of history and God sees all of our lives. And of course, God knows who will choose him. God knows who will reject him. God knows. He always knows. And in his plan, he plans with full knowledge of how everything is already going to turn out. God already knows from the start. He knows. You and I have absolute free choice. You notice what it says there in verse 13. Now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own. He identified us as his own when we believed. You see, God chooses me, but then I choose him too. I still have that free will and I choose him. But don't you understand, in Paul's view here, the church, it's not as personal as you and I want to make it. Paul's not talking about us as individuals. He continues to use plural pronouns. He's talking about us and we. Because the idea is God's purpose, God's plan for the church has to do with a people, a large group of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. God is creating a people. And it's not really as much about you and me as we think. God has a plan, a mysterious, marvelous plan. Notice what the scripture says. Verse 9, God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure, and this is the plan. I'm telling you, whatever I'm involved in, I want to know the plan. I like to know what's happening. I like to know that we really have a purpose here. And this is where Scripture says this is the plan. At the right time, God will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. God has a great big mysterious plan. And that plan is to bring everything, everything in the world, 
into perfect harmony through Christ. Everything under the authority of Christ, this is his plan. Right now, not everything is in perfect harmony. There's a lot of conflict in creation. There's conflict between me and you, between people. There's conflict between us and our bodies, between us and cancer, don't you understand? There's conflict between us and the earth that some people say we're destroying. There's conflict everywhere. But God's great big plan is to bring everything into perfect harmony. And he's doing it through Christ. That's God's great big plan. That's what God is doing. It's what he's been doing from the very beginning. Bringing everything together in Christ. And don't you understand? The church is the expression of that. The church is the beginning of that. If you want to see where God is working in the world, you look to the church. The church is that group of people that God has called out. As a part of his great big plan to bring everything, everybody in the world into perfect harmony through Christ. That's the plan. That's the plan. Along with that plan comes power. Power. It's the same power, Paul says, that God used to bring Christ back from the dead. That kind of power. Power over death kind of power. I guess this is the most frustrating thing for me, probably the most frustrating thing for you, and honestly, it seems one of the most frustrating things for Paul, because he says this on the one hand, that God has given us this great power, this great power, it it is ours. God has given the church supernatural power in the world. We have the power, all of the power to do his work. Don't you understand that? And yet when you look at us, we don't seem to have a lot of power. We can't manage, some of us, we can't manage to organize the two-pony parade. We can't manage sometimes to agree on color of carpet in the church. We don't look like we have a lot of power. It's one of the great puzzles of this scripture. If we've given all of this power, the same power that brought Christ back from the dead, how come with so much power we're accomplishing so little? How come when people look at the church, they don't see anything that would amaze them or anything that would demand some sort of supernatural explanation? Honestly, you look at most churches, it really doesn't look like there's that much power. I guess I was about six years old one Christmas. I asked for a chemistry set. Chemistry set. Now, on Gilligan's Island, when the professor worked, and he worked with, you know, beakers and chemistry and stuff like that. He always had beakers that were bubbling and smoking. You ever seen that like in, in Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory? That's what I was after. I wanted that. But my chemistry set came in this big case with all of these chemicals and, and this book of little experiments I could run. But these experiments were so boring. So boring. It was just the sort of thing where you put something in a test tube and add something else and it turns blue. Well, you know, Tidy Bowl does that. That's not interesting. So I decided one day in my grandma's kitchen just to make something happen. So I got out a glass, not one of my little test tubes. I got a glass out of grandma's cabinet and I started pouring stuff. Guess what? I got bubbles and smoke, baby. Just like the professor on the Gilligan's Island. It scared me to death. I dumped that down the sink as quick as I could. It scared me to death. You understand? I had great power there in my hands. But I did not know what I had in my hands. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I didn't even know what I had done after I did it. Do you understand? And this is exactly how the church is. We have great power. God gives us the power. And it comes from the Holy Spirit. We have power because we have the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. He came back from the dead in a great expression of power, ascended back to heaven, a great expression of power. But the church was not born until the Holy Spirit came and possessed those people. And when the Holy Spirit comes and possesses you, you have power. You have a new kind of power, a supernatural power. You can do things that no human should ever be able to do because you have the Spirit of God and His power in you. But you don't understand that. That's why Paul says, you've got this great power. I just pray, I just pray that you'd have the wisdom to understand it. I just pray that you'd have the wisdom to understand what God has put in you. Because honestly, it's never going to come out of us until we begin to understand what God has put in us. It's power, great power. But it is power to do His work. God gives us power to do His work. We have a purpose. And the purpose is oh so plain, but oh so beautiful. Notice what the scripture says. Verse 14. The Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us the inheritance He promised and that He has purchased us to be His own people. He did this. Here's our purpose. Ready? He did this so we would praise and glorify Him. That's our purpose. That the church's purpose to praise and glorify Him. Our job on earth is to make a big deal out of God. And he's given us all the power, all the power in heaven and earth to praise and glorify him. All of the power we need to do his work. And this is our problem. We're really not all that interested in doing God's work. The reason why we seem so powerless is because we never attempt anything that would require God's power. When we begin to focus like a laser on doing the things God wants us to do, we will have power, power to do his work, power to do what God wants done. It's never promised that we'll have power to do what we want to do. But too often in the church, all we're interested in is praising and glorifying ourselves. It's all we're interested in. Most of us, when we come to church, we want it to be all about us. We want the church to somehow revolve around us. We want to sing the songs that we want to sing. We want the temperature to be adjusted to a comfortable temperature for us. We want the church somehow to serve our families very, very well. We kind of want the church to be sort of like a really, really uh, a well-organized social club so every member of our family has something that they enjoy and every member of our family has a, a best friend at church and every member of our family gets coddled and catered to. That's what a lot of us want. We really just want something that would praise and glorify us, something that would meet our needs, something that would feed us. takes no supernatural power to create a social club. It does not take the power of God to somehow keep your family satisfied and happy, although I believe for some of you it would take a miracle to satisfy you and your families. Understand, that's not why the church exists. We do not exist to make a name for ourselves. We don't even exist to plant churches, uh, 20 churches by the year 2020. That's not truly our purpose. Our purpose is to advance the kingdom of God. Our purpose is to do a, our part in God's great big plan to bring everything into perfect harmony in Christ, to spread that news of Christ to the very ends of the earth. That's the purpose. And that's what the power's for. When we begin to do God's will 
in God's way, we will have God's power. But only when we're doing his purpose. To praise and glorify him. Somebody made up a story once about Jesus after he went back to heaven, after he had been crucified and raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven. Someone made up a story about the the day he got back to heaven and all the angels gathered around him and started asking him what happened on earth. Tell us, Jesus, about what happened while you were on earth. And Jesus told him the story. He said, I I went and I walked among the people, became one of them. I, I grew as one of them. Then I began my ministry. I was baptized by John the Baptizer in the River Jordan. I shared my teachings with all of the people, everybody that would come to me. I shared my teachings. And and I expressed my love to them. And I, I healed their sick and I raised their dead. And then I was crucified. I died on the cross for their sins. And then I, I came back from the dead and now I've, I've returned to glory. One of the angels said, well, Jesus, what happens next? What happens next? And Jesus said, ah, that, that, that's the best part. I have left a handful of men and women who are going to continue my work in the world. They are now going to share my teachings and express my love and lay down their lives. They now are going to do my work, continue my work in the world. I left a handful of men and women. I'm going to take the kingdom to the whole world. One of the angels scratched his head and said, well, well, Jesus, what if they fail? What if they fail? What's your plan then? Jesus said, There is no other plan. There is no other plan. This is God's great big plan. It has to do with the church, the people that God has called, that Christ has saved and transformed, that the Holy Spirit has possessed to praise and glorify him forever. We are the church. We are God's people. We are a part of this great plan. He gives us his power and we have a purpose. We have his purpose. Pray with me. God, when the community of Woodburn or the community of Franklin looks at our churches or at our campuses, I wonder what they see. I wonder if they see people who are obviously called out by God and transformed through Christ and possessed the Holy Spirit. I just wonder, Lord, if any of that is, is visible. Because, God, something tells me that when you show up, Lord, somehow it's always apparent, Lord. When you show up, you always bring your glory. God, we're praying that you would show up in our congregation, that you would show up in our lives so that our lives could bring you glory. But God, truly, it's not that you haven't shown up. It's that we really haven't shown up for you. God, you have done everything. You have done your part. You have laid down your life for us, Lord. You have chose us and and loved us before the creation of the world, Lord. You have done everything. And now you've left some things for us to do. 
Oh God, forgive us for being critics of the church. Forgive us, Lord, for complaining and growing cold and acting as if somehow, Lord, the church exists for us ourselves, Lord. Lord, it is your church. We are your people. And the church is not this organization or this building and certainly not this pastor, certainly not this people, Lord. It's not about us, Lord. It is about you and your praise and your glory and the people that you have called out and empowered and sent into the world. God, we have heard your call. Many of us have come to you. We are now the church. Lord, I pray for those in the sound of my voice who hear your call but have not yet come to you, not yet surrendered to to doing their part of your great plan and not yet surrendering, Lord, for the forgiveness of their sins and the transformation of their lives. Lord, if there's anyone in this house who needs a new life, who needs a new start, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall down hard upon their heart, show them what they need to do. Oh God, truly you are here. Truly, you are here in power. So God, today, before we leave this house, let us experience truly your presence and your power that we might be the church that you have called us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.